This is an ABC podcast. Norman, it's been a while since I've ribbed you about your love for Western Australia, Rottnest Island and Quokkas, but when I'm looking at the Google Doc that we use to share our notes with each other, you've come up as anonymous quokka for me today. So I've never thought of myself as anonymous quokka. Some quokka from WE must have gone in as a gremlin. <laughs> yeah, actually, you're very anonymous, as in... You, but I'm generally sure who I'm talking to when I'm talking to you. Really? Yeah. But I haven't been to WA this summer yet. This, I'm pining. A wasted opportunity. I'm actually going tomorrow. Lucky you. Oh, well, enough about us and our cross-country travels. Let's do CoronaCast to show all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor on Jagera and Turable Land. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan on Gadigal Land. It's Wednesday, February the 22nd, 2023. <music> And Norman, a game changer in the way COVID is treated has come in the form of the antiviral medications that have come online in the last year or so. The two big ones are Paxlovid, which is a combination of two drugs that I struggle to pronounce, and then Molnupiravir, which is the generic term for the other one. And they're really powerful in treating COVID and taking it from being what can be a very severe disease into a mild disease in people who are at high risk. But there's been a bit of a question mark about whether they suppress the virus without getting rid of it entirely and that when you come off it, maybe you have rebound COVID, as it's been called. But a few studies have been looking into that and I want you to tell me what they're saying. Well, it's one in particular in Lancet Infectious Diseases. What they found was there was actually no difference. So rebound did occur. It occurred in maybe 5% of people with COVID. They were looking at people with uh, the Omicron BA2 variant in Hong Kong and following them through in really quite a lot of detail. There were hospitalised patients. So it wasn't, it was a selected group of people. Although I think in Hong Kong, they hospitalised more people than we would have hospitalised here. They didn't necessarily have to have as severe disease as you would have in Australia to get into hospital. But they did not find any difference between Paxlovid, Molnupiravir, or people who had had neither. So this is nearly, this is 4,600-ish people. That's a pretty big size of samples. I feel like we were hearing heaps about COVID rebound, that it sort of felt like it was happening to everyone, but that's quite a small percentage. It is. There are all sorts of problems with understanding rebound. So some studies have not done proper testing afterwards to find out whether or not you have had another infection or whether it's the same virus coming back. This particular study looked at the amount of virus in your body through an indirect measure, which is a so-called CT value. So that's how much virus is in your body. The lower the value, in fact, the more virus you've got in your body. So that was Oh, there. that's right. This is when they have to, kind of how many times they have to run the system to figure out how much virus there is in it. That's right. So really it was a measure of viral burden, but not really knowing whether or not you got infected with a new virus or it was the old one. There were some things that made sense. If you were immunocompromised, you were more likely to get a viral burden rebound. In other words, the virus came back. And that's regardless of your antiviral treatment. Interestingly, if you were a bit younger, so if you were aged between 18 to 65 versus over 65, you were more likely to get a rebound, not necessarily easily explained. If you were taking corticosteroids for preventing the disease becoming more severe, you were more likely to get a rebound in viral burden. Oh, is this when they you might have you on dexamethasone? Yeah, and the idea there is that you may be getting a bit immunosuppressed. In people who were not fully vaccinated, uh, interestingly, the 
odds were reduced of you having a rebound, which may be something complicated to do with your immune system and the way your immune system responds to the virus when you're only partially or unvaccinated. And certainly people who had comorbidities, who had other illnesses, they were more likely to develop a viral rebound. But the bottom line, it was not related to whether or not you'd had a drug. So we haven't seen as much of the antivirals being prescribed in Australia as I think our neighbours in the States and other places have had. We've had lots of people telling us anecdotally via abc.net.au slash coronacast that they were having trouble getting their hands on antivirals. Does evidence like this change the way it could be prescribed? No. The main story here is about rebound and whether or not the virus comes back and you get an extended illness. What's incontrovertible, particularly with Paxlovid, is that it does reduce severe disease and does reduce death. Molnupiravir is a little bit le- is a bit less effective than Paxlovid in that sense. Paxlovid is a bit more complicated to prescribe, but the important thing here is that if you are at risk of severe disease, if you are over a certain age, there are qualifiers to getting the drug. You should get it if you qualify for it because it does increase the chances that you will not get severe disease. And there's one more thing I just want to say about viral burden is that essentially people did not get terribly sick with their increased viral burden. If they were going to get sick, it was with the first infection. When the viral burden bounced back, they did not get terribly sick. So even though they've got detectable virus in their system, they're not actually getting super sick from it. No. So that's a lot about the acute phase of COVID, the part where you're first infected and you're dealing with the virus. But of course, many, many people have suffered from long COVID. The virus might have left their body, but they're still left with prolonged, awful, disabling, often, symptoms. And the government has been looking into quantifying what long COVID looks like and how it should be dealt with in Australia. It's been a long and winding journey and it's not over yet, but part of the journey has been a roundtable discussion that was held on Friday last week. And the chair of the roundtable was Professor Tanya Sorrell from the Academy of Health and Medical Sciences, who joins us now. Good morning, Tegan. So, With the submission to the roundtable, what were the key messages from the academies to the government? I think the key messages were that, first of all, we have to have a workable understanding or definition of long COVID and one that is really modified a little bit depending whether it's being used clinically, that is by people looking after patients or the patients themselves, whether it's being used for research purposes or whether it's being used for epidemiological purposes. Why would you separate out those three? Because presumably when it all boils down, it's how it affects people that counts. The reason for having slightly different definitions is that in the clinical setting, it's less stringent. And particularly as COVID has evolved and a lot of people no longer actually have a diagnosis, they don't do a rat test or they don't have a PCR. And so we need a clinical definition that will accommodate that group of individuals. On the other hand, if we want to undertake research to really separate out the different forms of long COVID, for example, or try and develop biomarkers, We need a more stringent definition, which means that it has to be proven. So, Tanya, I was just wondering where you sat or the workshop sat. It sounds as if you went back to basics when things have moved ahead. I mean, the Biden administration is spending something like a billion dollars researching this area. There's really good Australian research so far, which suggests maybe three syndromes, a more cerebral one, a more physical one, 
um, or not, not that cerebral is not physical, and a mixed syndrome and some immune changes that seem to typify the condition. So we've gone quite far down the track already. Are you at risk of dismantling that research? Or, you know? uh, it was important really to discuss the definition, which was one of the four areas that we all spent a lot of time discussing. The main elements, in fact, that we focused on were those that were going to make a difference to patients, thinking about risk factors for long COVID, thinking about new therapeutics that might be purpose designed for some of the individual kind of presentations. And one I thought was new and particularly interesting was around potential treatments for a syndrome called POTS, which is uh, when you stand up, your heart rate goes up dramatically and you get quite dizzy. And the cardiologist on the panel has seen a lot of these patients. He's seen it as quite a significant problem post-COVID. And he was educating us and the committee about potential new treatments. So therapeutics, really important. There are some clinical research that's important too, because we want to know that the approaches or interventions we put in place for people are actually helping them. So if we're actually looking at psychosocial impacts, if we're looking at exercise therapy, we want to identify a group of patients that will help, not a group of patients that will hurt. And that does need some clinical research embedded in practice to achieve. Two questions, finally, Tanya. In 2020, we got to solutions for COVID treatments, mm -hmm. at least things that would help very, very quickly with a very different style of clinical trial where they were doing mass clinical trials, particularly in the UK where they had good electronic records. And when things didn't work like hydrochloroquine, they fell off and you were able to shift people onto other things. That's when they found out that steroids helped a lot. Are we going back to the sort of old fashioned way of doing trials where it takes five years to find an answer? Or are you willing to use new methodologies where you do things in parallel quickly, things drop off, other things go on so that maybe in a year you've got a solution rather than five to ten? Yes, so this is the so-called adaptive clinical trials. We're very much supporting that approach. We know that things have to be done quickly. We're trying to look at things that can be done now, try and develop a research strategy for the committee to present to government that actually will include those clinical trials. In the meantime, for people who are worried about long COVID or who are living with it, what should they be doing? We believe that primary care is really going to be the axis around which care can be developed and, you know, individuals' pathways created. So seeing your GP, making sure that you speak to individuals or professionals who are up to date and very aware of the issue. Tanya, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome and good morning, Norman. <laughs> <laughs> See you, Tanya. Bye. Professor Tanya Sorrell is an infectious disease physician at the University of Sydney and she was the chair of the roundtable informing the parliamentary committee into long COVID and repeated infections. Just before we go, this week, the Atagi advice on boosters came into play. So if you've had four shots and you've not had a vaccine or an infection in the last six months, you can get your fifth dose. But really, it was advice about boosters in general. So if you have not had a vaccination or an infection in the last six months, you're due for a booster, whether it's your third, fourth, or indeed your fifth dose. Go and get it. Thanks for the reminder, Norman. I'm actually going to go and book my fifth dose right now. And ideally with the latest bivalent vaccine. Got it, Doc. Thanks for the advice as always. And we'll see you next week. See you then.